The Blacks and Whites Network proudly presents Katherine Raker of Let's Just Talk. Hi, this is Katherine Raker of Let's Just Talk. You know, it's so important that during this period of time, which is Women's Health Week, we have Dr. Pamela Habib and we have Director of U.S. Medical Affairs for Bayer Radiology and Dr. David Schacht, pressed radiologists at Northwestern Linsage Breast Center. And they're gonna shine a light on what women need to know about dense breast and how breast density is detected and its impact on breast cancer risk and future breast screenings. I wanna welcome you to our show. This is really an important subject. Uh, there's so many people that really need to know more about this. So let's start, uh, I wanna welcome you both to my show. Thank and, you, Catherine. Oh, you're welcome. Um, Tell us, uh, I don't know who wants to go first. Would you like, doctor, would you like to go first, uh, Dr. Habib, or would you like to go first, Dr. David? Tell me. Um, either one is fine, but I can start. What is breast density and how does it impact breast cancer, the breast, I mean, sorry about that, breast cancer risk? That's a lot to say in one, one little sentence, right? <laughs> so, um, so many people, have, you know, find breast cancer and they're really worried about that density. So can you explain it to us, please? Absolutely, it's a great question. Um, and I think it causes a lot of confusion in the, in the community because when people think of the word density, they think it's something you can feel and they think they can feel whether they have dense breasts or not. But really the only way to determine how dense the woman's breasts are, are through a mammogram. And so what density means is that on a mammogram, we can see fatty tissue in the breast, and we also see what we call fibroglandular tissue. That's really the functioning tissue of the breast. And the more fibroglandular tissue there is in a breast, the more dense the breast is. So um, it's a very common finding, and nearly half of women age 40 or over find out after their mammogram that they have dense breasts. Uh, it's also a normal finding, but the reason why it's important is because it can, um, there are some risks associated with it. And that's why we're hoping to get the, the word out of what that means for a woman's risk. Uh, I think there are two main reasons uh, that the risk is increased. One is that it's actually harder to find cancer on a mammogram if the breasts are dense. And the reason for that is because breast, uh, dense breasts appear white on a mammogram and so does a tumor. And so that be hidden, there's a lot of dense tissue. Um, in addition to that, just having dense breasts increases a woman's risk as well. So a woman with extremely dense breasts uh, is four to six more times likely to develop breast cancer than a woman who does not have dense breasts. Well, Dr. David, let me ask you, for women with dense breasts, are mammograms enough to detect the breast cancer? And what do you suggest? Yeah, Catherine, that's a that's a great question. Um, and um, the question, or, or the the simple answer is, um, it depends. And and really, it's a conversation that women need to be having with their doctors after they've had one or more mammograms to understand how density might affect them. Um, a, as a starting point, we know from from long term follow up, good clinical trials that, regardless of your breast density, mammography saves lives. So step one is always to be getting those routine screening mammograms um, because, you know, as Dr. Habib said, some cancers can be harder to see when patients have breast, high breast density, 
but it doesn't mean that they're never seen in those patients. So it's important to start with the mammogram. And then if you do um, turn out to be a patient who does have high breast density, the conversation with your referring providers um, in consultation, if necessary, with um, the breast radiologists who have read your mammogram will be really to figure out what if any tests besides and in, in addition to the mammogram make the most sense for you. Um, in many parts of the country, this could be a screening ultrasound test or a screening MRI test, among other things. Um, and determining what makes sense for you as an individual patient is really best done um, holistically in a shared decision-making model between the patient and her care providers to understand everything about her breast health and make the best decision for her. Um, and there's so many new things I would say that are out there with uh, with radiology or with mammograms and the new mammograms and all the different things that have happened. But shouldn't we also, and this is a question for both of you, shouldn't we also be doing a breast examination on ourselves and feeling our breast you know, to make sure that there isn't a lump there and can we be able to detect it? Sure, absolutely. So it's always important to be aware of your own um, breast size, breast texture, everything. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it wouldn't uh, deter, it wouldn't identify whether you have dense breasts, but you can still feel anything new, any changes. So it's always important, I would say, to, to have that own self awareness and self-screening so that you can bring it up with your doctor if you feel something that seems out of And yeah. you know, go ahead, doctor. No, Catherine, I was just gonna agree with Dr. Habib and just say, you know, I think no one um, typically knows their body better than the, the person themselves. So um, anytime you feel something new or different um, in your breast or otherwise, it's it always makes sense to uh, bring that up to your healthcare providers um, get the right testing to make sure um, that everything is okay if there is is a change um, in, in the way things feel to you. And, you know, what questions should women with dense breasts ask their doctors and not to be afraid to ask that question? Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's really important to start with just what, um, what how does this breast density impact my risk? And so I think that's the first question. What does that mean for me? Uh, your doctor will ask you a, a lot of questions on other risk factors that you might have because breast density is not the only risk factor for developing breast cancer. But in a conversation with your doctor, um, going through all of your risk factors, it, the doctor can help you decide, you know, do you, should you get additional screening? Um, and if so, what, what would that be? Yeah, Catherine, I, I would add too that for the, for the most part at this point, breast density is something that's recorded in the medical report and additionally commented on in the patient letter that they received from the um, facility that provided their mammogram. So starting point one and 101 can just be determining what your breast density is and then having that follow-up conversation with your provider about what, if anything else, might make sense for you. So Dr. Habib, has the pandemic impacted women and that might be getting uh, breast screenings. It actually, I had my breast screening during the pandemic and I was happy that I got it because I think it's so important. So tell me how it's impacted around the country. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I think uh, all screening tests, all non-immersion medical tests in general have declined during the pandemic, and that includes breast screening. Um, there have been multiple studies and surveys done, and um, in some cases, breast screening declined by 87% um, during, if you compare April of the, when the pandemic started versus the previous five years. So it really it really did uh, trend downwards, but it What's very important is to, to get back on track if you did miss um, any kind of test during that time. So as Dr. Schacht mentioned, mammograms, it's really the, that first test that somebody needs um, for breast screening. And it's really important to, to get in there as soon as you can if you missed it. But uh, we did see that decline during the pandemic. Dr. Schacht, what's your, you know, what would you like to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I mean, especially as it relates to that last question, Catherine, you know, I, I would highly encourage women who maybe haven't been able to access um, routine screening during the pandemic to just find a way to make that a priority. And if you haven't had a mammogram before, um, which unfortunately can be a, a decent number of some populations within our country, please talk to your healthcare providers, get linked up with um, someone who can get you the screening test uh, and, and the additional test potentially based on your breast density um, that truly, truly, truly can be so impactful. And Dr. Habib, where can our listeners go for more information? They can go to understandyourdensity.com. And there's a lot of information on that site. Uh, you can take a quiz and see how much you know about breast density, and you can learn a number of different facts about it. So I would encourage people to take a look at that site. So thank you so much for what you're doing. And thank you for joining me today on Katherine Raker's Let's Just Talk. And we'll make sure this gets on all of our stations. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. You're listening to Let's Just Talk with Katherine Raker. Did you know that memory loss now affects almost 7 million people in America? And the Alzheimer's Research Foundation estimates that by the year 2050, there will be 50 million people with dementia in America. Are you preparing your family, especially your grandchildren, for this issue? This is Dan Perkins, and I'm the author of a new book for children ages 9 to 12 and their families to help them understand that it's not their fault when Grammy can't remember them. Why Can't Grammy Remember Me is available at Amazon or through your local bookseller. Don't make your grandchildren part of the lost generation. Little children aren't the only ones afraid of the dark. Millions of soldiers return from war zones with PTSD, traumatic brain injury, anger, frustration, fear, and loneliness, much of which surfaces during the darkness of night. You have the chance to change the lives of these American heroes. Songs and Stories for Soldiers was created to serve veterans who deal with the lack of sleep due to their injuries. Songs and Stories for Soldiers.us provides a free MP3 player for these men and women. With a list of 3 million songs in 16 different styles, 100,000 audiobooks, and 30,000 old-time radio programs, every veteran can find something to soothe and comfort them at no cost. All our players contain an 8-hour audio program designed to help veterans fall asleep. With 1,500-plus vets now participating, it's our goal to deliver 10,000 audio players this year. To learn how you can help, go to our website at songsandstoriesforsoldiers.us. Help us to help a veteran make it through the night. Did you know that more than 100,000 Americans have a serious lung disease that very few people know about? I'm Dr. David Letterer, co-director of the New York Presbyterian Columbia University Interstitial Lung Disease Program. Idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF, is a severe irreversible disease causing scarring of the lungs. 
IPF can seem similar to other diseases, so many people with IPF may be undiagnosed or misdiagnosed for years. Symptoms include a persistent dry cough, shortness of breath, and a Velcro-like crackle in the lungs, which a doctor can hear. IPF generally affects people over 50 and is slightly more common in men, with a five-year survival rate worse than many cancers. Diagnosis is important, as treatments are now available. The Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation strongly recommends you see a pulmonologist if you experience shortness of breath that limits your ability to walk up stairs or hills, or an unexplained persistent cough lasting longer than eight weeks. Go to pulmonaryfibrosis.org to learn more about IPF. We're back. You're listening to Let's Just Talk with Katherine Riker. Hi, this is Katherine Riker of Let's Just Talk. I am so excited uh, with this next guest who is a, his name is Dr. Zachary Bohart, MD, University Orthopedics and Tufts Medical Center, who specializes in physical medicine, rehabilitation, and comprehensive specificity management. And, you know, it's May is Stroke Awareness Month, which is really important because we never know when this is going to happen. Um, and understanding the symptoms and treatment options. And we're going to learn more about the condition that impacts 25 to 43% of U.S. stroke patients. I want to welcome you to our show, Doctor. This is such an important, important subject because we never know when this could happen. Am I correct? And welcome to our show. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Catherine, and thank you for letting us raise awareness for this really important condition. Oh, yeah, because it can happen any time, and people aren't aware of it in a lot of respects. Am I correct on that? Absolutely. Uh, spasticity is, is a condition where um, certain muscles in the arms or the legs can really involuntarily contract or tense up, and it can cause a very significant uh, disabling and lifelong impact on a person's independence, ability to function, ability to move freely, and ability to be cared for uh, by a loved one. And, uh, yeah, it happens very frequently uh, after a stroke or really any other disease of the brain or the spinal cord. Right. And, you know, what are the symptoms of post-stroke specificity or, you know, when this happens as a stroke? Because a lot of people need to know what the signs are, what to look for. Absolutely. Yeah, knowing is half the battle. Uh, so uh, the, the typical uh, pattern that we'll see in somebody after a stroke, and you may have seen somebody like this, you know, a loved one or walking down you know, the street or in a mall, uh, is the bent elbow, uh, the bent wrist, uh, and the uh, flexed fingers as well. You know, Bob Dole had this. Uh, and after a while, if you don't treat it, the joints can get stuck in that position, and which is why it's so important to treat it before that happens. How is it diagnosed, doctor? So after someone has a stroke, uh, frequently someone will go to some form of rehab uh, where they will see an occupational therapist or a physical therapist. And it's usually those therapists in the post-stroke period after a stroke who begin to really uh, see the impediment that spasticity can impose on someone's level of functioning uh, and caregiving. Uh, then also certainly the patient's neurologist who treated the stroke because neurologists will then follow the patient for a period of time after the stroke. Uh, and also the same thing with doctors in my field, uh, physical medicine and rehabilitation as well. Why is it so important to speak with a healthcare provider if you're experiencing post-stroke spasticity? 
The reason why is because the earlier we treat it, the easier and more successful the treatment is. So after a while, if we don't treat it, uh, someone's wrist or fingers or elbow or shoulder, any joint, the knee joint, the ankle joint, can get stuck and fused and contracted in that position. And once that happens, the treatments that we have are far less effective. And it's really our job as experts in spasticity to prevent that from occurring. And it can happen fast. Yes, it can. And it's, you know, I mean, I'm just, I just had an operation and I'm going through that therapy right now, not because of a stroke, but it's sure. really helped. I can't even tell you. So what role do, yeah, you know what I mean? So, um, and I, it, it makes such a difference because you really want to get back to your everyday life skills, right? That's our job to help you do that, to try to really maximize your level of functioning so you can enjoy your life to, to, to the greatest degree possible. That's our job. What role do caregivers play in the management of post-stroke? Caregivers, caregivers. that's a great question. Caregivers really, really play a huge role. And the reason why is because after stroke, sometimes people are not really aware uh, of one side of their body, the side that's affected. So they might not even know that, that they have spasticity uh, or they can't really speak up about it because they might have a speech difficulty. And it's really the caregivers who are uh, getting uh, their loved one dressed, uh, getting them into and out of a wheelchair, helping them walk with their walker or their cane or any type of assistive device, performing hygiene uh, to clean their hand, uh, uh, you know, to change their clothes. Uh, and spasticity can absolutely impair all of these things and really make it a lot more difficult. And there is treatment out there. You just have to really find it and advocate for yourself and advocate for your loved one because there is very effective treatment out there. Right. And what is the available treatment options for spasticity? So that's really where uh, it really becomes interesting treating it because it really all depends on the degree of spasticity and the underlying level of functioning in the patient. So the treatment can range from physical and occupational therapy, like your family member, uh, wearing a brace or splint to try to keep the ankle or the hand or the elbow in the correct position. Uh, Then there's oral medications as well, which in certain circumstances can be helpful. But then there's also a lot of injections with medications into uh, the spastic muscles uh, that can help uh, tremendously, uh, or surgery as well. What advice do you have for our listeners if they have a loved one who might be experiencing spasticity, and where can our audience find more information, doctor? So I always tell patients that I'd rather see somebody who doesn't need treatment than to see somebody too late when there's really not much for me to do. Uh, So it's very important to find a neurologist or a physiatrist uh, who really specializes in this. Uh, and the sooner you're treated for this, the better, because after a while it really becomes very complex and a lot more difficult to treat. Uh, There is a great website called DontTakeSpasticity.com, which really has a bunch of really good resources for people as well. I can't thank you enough for your mission and what you're doing because you really do help a lot of people come back to their daily life, and thank you for your service and what you do, doctor. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We'll be right back. You're listening to Let's Just Talk with Katherine Riker. Little children aren't the only ones afraid of the dark. Millions of soldiers return from war zones with PTSD, traumatic brain injury, anger, frustration, fear, and loneliness. 
much of which surfaces during the darkness of night. You have the chance to change the lives of these American heroes. Songs and Stories for Soldiers was created to serve veterans who deal with the lack of sleep due to their injuries. Songs and Stories for Soldiers.us provides a free MP3 player for these men and women. With a list of 3 million songs in 16 different styles, 100,000 audiobooks, and 30,000 old-time radio programs, every veteran can find something to soothe and comfort them at no cost. All our players contain an 8-hour audio program designed to help veterans fall asleep. With 1,500-plus vets now participating, it's our goal to deliver 10,000 audio players this year. To learn how you can help, go to our website at songsandstoriesforsoldiers.us. Help us to help a veteran make it through the night. We are Lions. We bring hope where it's needed. Support causes that matter. Change lives. Change communities. Change the world. Visit lionsclubs.org to learn more. We're back. You're listening to Let's Just Talk with Katherine Riker. Hi, this is Katherine Riker. Joining us now to discuss the controversy around explicit books available in students is Sherry Few, who serves as a founder and president of the United States Parents and Involved in Education, USPIE for short. Sherry also serves as an executive producer for the new film documentary, Truth and Lies in American Education. The film... The film is available for viewing on the film's website, www.truthandliesfilm.com. I want to welcome her to our show today. Welcome to our show, Sherry. I really am excited about it. And let me ask you this question to start. Um, There was a case in the Epic Times. A Colorado mother was cut off at the local school board meeting while reading about a graphic passage from a book that is available at the school district. The school board described the mother was out of control and determined she stopped reading. The mother protested and said, this is what you allow in our schools. This is what you allow for our kids to have access to. This is pornography and this is grooming for pedophile, pedophilia. This is grooming for pedophilia. So tell me, Sherry, was the school board right in cutting off the mother from reading a sexually explicit passage, or should she have been permitted to make her point? Well, obviously, if children are able to access these materials, a parent ought to be able to read it aloud at a school board meeting. And if it's that explicit that it can't be read aloud at the school board meeting, then it does not belong in the public schools for children's uh, perusal. So obviously um, they should have let her continue or she made her point by having them shut her down. Uh, And it should have been resolved based on that. In the face of some of schools trying to reach critical race theory and other controversial topics, what do you think about the availability of such reading material for children? Well, I can tell you with recent events, uh, especially when the American Libraries Association recently chose as their next president a self-proclaimed Marxist lesbian who took to Twitter and said that she was going to use collectivism to address race, white supremacy, imperialism, 
through her new role at the Library Association. So these are the folks that are leading the libraries and the school libraries are affiliated with the American Library Association. And in fact, the president of the um, American Federation of Teachers, Randy Weingarten, um, endorsed this woman for this presidential role. And she has concurred with her in the fact that she will use her role to advance their very liberal agenda. And even in the government schools as we're already seeing happening. But this, this is a travesty to see that, you know, parents are being called um, domestic terrorists when they speak at a school board meeting and they're, they're cut off from being able to speak because information is too explicit. And yet um, these other organizations are saying, you know, that, that we're the ones that need to be censored, that, that we are censoring in essence, if we say that we should ban these books. And in, in the truth of the matter is, it is pornography and it has no place inside government schools. This has gone way, way overboard, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And and we believe the United States Parents of All in Education, the organization which I direct, we believe this is child abuse. I mean, there are laws in our country that prohibit uh, pornography for children. And so it is, it's, it's illegal, it's child abuse, and it has to stop. And we talk about uh, the sexualization of children in our documentary that you mentioned at the opening. So it's, you know, it's not just the fact that they're teaching sexually explicit things to very young children, some of the things like you mentioned, but even the heavy transgender influence in schools that's being done behind parents' backs. So this is one of the main topics. We also talk about critical race theory. We talk about the anti-American propaganda that's being taught in government schools and even false history. There are a lot of problems. It's a, it's a serious liberal indoctrination that's happening in America's classrooms. And that's why we ask everybody to view our film so they can get informed again at truthinliesfilm.us. And once they're informed, they can pass it along to other people because we need to grow a grassroots army to stop the liberal indoctrination of children, to protect children and to protect our country's freedom. Are you doing it in schools as well? Or not schools, but churches and other organizations that will well, allow you to do it? Well, we are encouraging those who view the film because you can go to the website and you can download the film and you can take it to your church and have a, a church uh, viewing or a neighborhood viewing. It's, it's a very good idea to watch it with other people and then talk about what you're going to do to get involved. And what we encourage at the end of the film is to go to our website at USPIE, that's USPI.org, and there they can sign up to join the movement we have 20 state chapters and we're growing and we can get them connected with people in their state or we can help them to start a chapter in their state if there isn't already one. You know, we've seen examples of people harming and even burning books before. What are your thoughts on the availability of such books? Is it okay to offer them elsewhere outside of schools? Well, absolutely. So the idea that we're being attacked for banning books, again, is is problematic. It's, it's, it's actually contradictory because it is the parents and uh, individuals that are speaking out. Those are the ones that are being censored. Mm -hmm. And so um, not allowing pornography for children 
is the right thing to do. It's not banning anything. It's actually upholding the law. So it is illegal to show pornography to children. It should not be happening. So then as far as the other issues that are being taught, the critical race theory, the it's Marxist in its roots, um, you know, parents are outraged. And that's sort of the silver lining, if you will, of the COVID pandemic was that parents were able to see what their children were actually learning. And so it's time that we return to a classical form of education, stick to the basics, the, the three R's and, and not four R's that includes racism. And we need to um, begin to educate children again and teach them how to think instead of what to think. And we're running out of time, but if it's not through literature, what is the best way to teach children about such subjects matter if it should be taught at all? Well, some of it is just downright untruthful. So obviously we don't wanna teach children things that aren't true. And that's why we named our film, Truth and Lies in American Education, because we're revealing the truth about the lies that are happening in government schools. So by and large, I would say most of these topics need to be just thrown in the trash and not taught at all. But if a parent wants to teach their child about sexual orientation or gender identity, that's their prerogative and it should have no place or no bearing in a taxpayer-funded uh, government school. Right. I want to thank you for joining me today on Catherine Raker's World. And where can we go to get more information about the film, please? So again, if you'll go to truthandliesfilm.us, you can view the film there. You can send other people there to view the trailer and get it, get it out as far and wide as possible. Again, our goal is to grow a grassroots army across the country because that's what it's gonna take to protect children and to protect our country's freedom. We really appreciate your mission. And I want to thank you for joining me on Catherine Raker's World. Don't forget to go to our website at catherinerakersworld.com. Thank you for joining us on Catherine Raker's Let's Just Talk on the Blacks and Whites Network.